Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. This week's episode is about telemedicine. Now, telemedicine is the use of electronic communications and software to provide clinical services to patients, but without them actually having a face-to-face visit with a consulting physician. Telemedicine is certainly going on in Kentucky, but today you'll hear a lecture about telemedicine between cardiologists here in the United States and young heart patients in Uganda, which is in Central Eastern Africa. It's Dr. Andrea Beaton, a physician and associate professor of pediatrics at the Heart Institute in the Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Ohio. She was speaking at Bellarmine University in Louisville back on February 11, 2020. Introducing Dr. Beaton is Dr. Martha Carlson Mazur of Environmental Studies at Bellarmine University. Take it away, Martha. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming to our Origins Talk today. I'm Dr. Martha Carlson Mazur in the Department of Environmental Studies. Okay, so today we're fortunate to have Dr. Andrea Beaton, who is a pediatric cardiologist with expertise in rheumatic heart disease and community-engaged research. Her work in rheumatic heart disease has focused on a broad range of topics, including drivers of disease development, utilizing echocardiography and telemedicine to improve diagnosis and outcomes task shifting and novel strategies for decentralized care delivery, and understanding and improving the lived experience of rheumatic heart disease. Currently, she's running a first, the first community-based epidemiological study of rheumatic fever in sub-Saharan Africa, supervising a large-scale clinical trial in northern Uganda to determine if penicillin prophylaxis can improve outcomes for children living with early rheumatic heart disease. She has published over 50 peer-reviewed publications on RHD and serves as the chair of the Rheumatic Fever, Endocarditis, and Kawasaki Disease Committee of the American Heart Association and is a member of the American Heart Association's International Committee. Her talk today is on telemedicine and task shifting in sub-Saharan Africa, applications in rheumatic heart disease. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Beaton. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me to come in today. I'm excited to share with you guys a little bit about what we're doing around telemedicine. So specifically, Martha asked me to speak to you guys on a broad topic, and so I'm gonna share how telemedicine is changing, how we bring care to communities, how we build capacity in low resource settings, and facilitating uh, our ability to do high quality research from abroad. All right, so we're gonna start with a basic, because many of you in the room may not have heard of rheumatic heart disease. To give you a sense of what this disease is, why we need to tackle it, and what the global burden is today. So rheumatic heart disease is a preventable heart condition. It remains endemic, which means it remains very widespread among vulnerable groups in many communities. Rheumatic heart disease starts with a simple strep infection, most commonly a strep sore throat, which probably all of you in the audience have had. Strep is driven by conditions of social deprivation, so household crowding, poor hygiene, and low access to medical services 
meaning that strep is very common in communities that have low resources. Left untreated, in particular if you're exposed multiple times to untreated strep infections, the body can overreact with an immune system problem called rheumatic fever. This is a generalized illness that causes joint pain and swelling, rash, fever, and most importantly, damage to the valves in the heart or the doors in the heart that open and close to let the blood flow through. The only lasting consequence of rheumatic fever is a condition called rheumatic heart disease. So while the rest of this immune reaction goes away on its own, the damage to the heart valves is permanent and progressive. Here you can see in the picture, all that blue is blood leaking backwards in the heart, which isn't supposed to happen, but those doors or the valves have been damaged. Over time, rheumatic heart disease can progress and you get complications like heart failure, stroke, infections in the heart called endocarditis, and problems with the heart rhythm, and those are the complications that drive early death and disability. So what is the history of rheumatic fever in our country? How did we accomplish near eradication? And then we'll look at what the global situation is. So very early on, in the early 1900s, we recognized that rheumatic fever, what we used to call scarlet fever, was highly contagious. And there were big public health campaigns to try to prevent the spread of a disease that people didn't understand the etiology of. In 1910 into the 1920s, the American Heart Association actually founded around this disease in the United States, which they dubbed childhood's greatest enemy. It was the number one killer of children in the United States in the early 1900s. Then this man, Dr. Coburn, realized that strep was the linkage, and very quickly, entire hospitals in the United States, every major city had one, were founded to care for children who had rheumatic fever. This is the hospital of the Good Samaritan in Boston. Around World War II is when we really hit a crisis in the United States. Over 50,000 troops in the United States Navy alone had rheumatic fever and were taken out of service. But the World War II is also when penicillin became mass available to treat battle wounds. And so applications in rheumatic fever came quickly. And this man, Dr. Jones, wrote the first criteria around this time for diagnosing rheumatic fever and for recommending penicillin for children with strep to prevent the complication of rheumatic fever. And very quickly, over a very short period of time here, only decades, rheumatic fever fell from being the most common cause of childhood illness to almost unheard of in the United States. But the current global situation is very different. There are large populations around the world where the incidence of rheumatic fever and the prevalence of rheumatic heart disease haven't changed since the United States levels in the, in the 1800s. And currently, 39 million people are living with rheumatic heart disease around the world. And I'll show you how that compares to some of the other common global illnesses we talk about. And 300,000 people, mostly children and young adults, will die from rheumatic heart disease this year. It's also important to recognize that 80% of the world's children live in an area still considered to be endemic for rheumatic heart disease, all those yellow countries on the map. And if we compare the burden to something like HIV, we'll see that the number of people living with disease is similar. Although there's about a quarter as many deaths, still a very important global health problem that doesn't receive that much attention. And rheumatic heart disease remains the leading cause of cardiovascular disability in young people around the world from all but the highest income country, which you see on the far left. 
but that dark green color is the percentage of cardiovascular disability caused by rheumatic heart disease in all the nation. And 85% of this death and disability is driven by early loss of life. So all, again, that dark green, it just shows that rheumatic heart disease is killing early, not leading to long-term disability. And what we know from our work in Uganda, which is my primary country of research, is that outcomes for children diagnosed with symptomatic rheumatic heart disease, so most kids come in late when they have symptoms, 30% of the children are dying at a mean time of eight months after diagnosis. So there's massive amounts of improvement that need to be made in this disease globally. Really exciting for someone working in the field. In 2018, the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the World Health Organization, adopted a resolution to reinvigorate work on rheumatic heart disease and rheumatic fever prevention globally. So all the countries in the world signed on to this resolution, which means rheumatic heart disease has to be prioritized within the health agendas of low and middle income countries going forward. But there's a big problem. You'll remember this map from before. All those yellow countries are the endemic countries for rheumatic heart disease. And keep your eyes on the yellow, in particular Africa and Southeast Asia. This is the position to patient ratio in those countries. And so what you can see is where rheumatic heart disease is endemic is also where we have the least capacity to build care, research, and clinical outcomes for children. Some of the areas in Sub-Saharan Africa, the ratios are as high as 50,000 to one physician to patient. It's a little better in Uganda where I work. It's right above there. That's 33,500 to one. That the big number there you see is the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. So what can we do? What can we do as researchers who need to answer questions in these areas where there's low capacity? What can we do as clinicians who need to improve outcomes for children who are living in these areas? So today I'll talk about just one way we're trying to bridge this gap by using telemedicine or remote care for children and families. So I'll talk about three different applications for telemedicine today and how we've been able to use telemedicine to provide expert consultation, how we're using telemedicine to build local capacity, and how telemedicine enables us to do very high quality research without having to live in low-income areas with our families and our competing work priorities all the time. So first we'll talk about expert consultation. So I wanted to give you guys a couple real examples of how we're using telemedicine every day to bring care to children and families. So the first example comes from South Sudan. You guys may know the reality on the ground in South Sudan, but two million displaced persons currently live inside South Sudan. Healthcare is incredibly scarce. We're in a healthcare crisis in this country. Less than 20% of people have any access to healthcare, and 80% of the services are delivered by NGOs such as Doctors Without Borders or MSF. So how can we engage experts from across the globe when we're in a crisis situation? So there isn't capacity to build locally here. They're really still in crisis. So this is an example of a case, and I get probably a few of these a week of a child who came in with concern for cardiac disease. This is an eight-month-old who came in with breathlessness. The first thought was the child had pneumonia, but the child isn't improving, and so they need a cardiology consult. Well, the local staff on the ground can obtain echo pictures, but they can't interpret them. So what they've done is engage a group of experts, including myself from around the world, who then get these cases in the email. You just click yes, you'll sign up, and you can provide a consultation from your desk. So I clicked yes, and you get this list of images here on the side, 
And then this bottom is a picture of a child's heart. The heart's upside down there, so that the pointy part of the heart's at the top of the screen. But what you see again, with that blue jet that's around the right side of your screen is all blood leaking back. And this is actually a case of infantile rheumatic heart disease, which is unheard of in most parts of the world, but still common in sub-Saharan Africa. So using telemedicine to get an appropriate diagnosis for this baby. Second example, which is really interesting, is in the South Pacific, they actually have a fair number of physicians, but no cardiology specialists in many of the small islands. And so to address this lack of care, one of our collaborators introduced teleauscultation. So auscultation just means listening to the heart. And so the provider on the ground follows a computerized algorithm of where to put the stethoscope. The sounds are recorded and sent again to experts in the United States for diagnosis. And what they found is just by the auscultation, just by the listening, the sounds that come over, they're able to get the diagnosis right in 85% of cases, almost 90% if they also provide a sentence about the clinical history. And so we're able to connect again remote areas to centralize experts. What I think is more exciting, so those are crisis situations, right? How do we provide care when there's really none? But this third example from where I work in northern Uganda talks about how we provide expert care within a country with our local resources. So another problem is getting local doctors inside Uganda, true across all countries, to live in remote areas. It's just not good for their families, and, and, and you can judge sort of those choices, but we're never going to get our smart, educated doctors, often married to doctors, to go live in very remote communities, and it's not the best use of our resources. So how can we connect in-country experts to their remote regions? So we have a project going in northern Uganda, which has been very successful and is very encouraging. So there's an established rheumatic heart disease registry in the country with these regional hubs, but we continued over years to lose our doctors from those regionalized hubs. And so we trained a cardiology nurse to staff each of these regional hubs who can obtain echo images and interact with the families. This is Jennifer, our nurse in northern Uganda, quite skilled woman. And so she's seeing a patient. There you see the red circle at the top is Gulu, northern Uganda, and Kapala, the capitalist circle there, where they have a heart institute with cardiologists. So she was seeing a nine-year-old who, again, had recently been discharged from the second hospitalization for what was diagnosed as recurrent pneumonia. So without diagnosis, without imaging, very hard to make these diagnoses correctly. The child continued to have joint pain and fever, suggestive of rheumatic fever, and was sent to the cardiology clinic. Jennifer, you can see there, was taking pictures of Michael, the boy, and these are the pictures she got. So again, we have moving images. You're going to see the same picture because rheumatic heart disease does the same thing to the valves each time. But on the right side, in the black, left side, in the black and white image, you can see the heart's really dilated. Those chambers look really big. And on the left side of the screen, again, you can see that blue curvy jet coming around where the blood is leaking. And really interesting, this child, when you look at our data, which we're analyzing now, so the images and the clinical history were transmitted around 12.45, 1.30 in the afternoon, and the child was able to be diagnosed within the hour with severe rheumatic heart disease and able to be transported to the capital through established systems. Kid actually had surgery the same week to repair this valve and is doing quite well now. And over the two years, we've been running the telemedicine program, again, all locally. So local doctors reading the echoes, local doctors making the recommendations. We've been able to do over 600 remote consultations for children that wouldn't have access to cardiology services. And the really great part of this program is it's a Ministry of Health pilot project looking at how we can expand to regionalize the care model in Uganda.
In the last example, we take a better resourced country, but a really large country where specialists don't exist outside of the major cities. So here we're looking at a state called Minas Gerais in Brazil, and we've partnered between them and seven public universities to support health professionals who are working in lower resource settings and remote areas in Brazil. And so all these dots on the map, this sort of shows us how we can scale these programs. All these dots on the map are connected to the capital city through telemedicine. It's in 800 cities and 1,000 points of upload. And in Minas Gerais at Belo Horizonte, the university, there's a whole room of telemedicine experts sitting there who have shifts in the telemedicine room. And they've been able to interpret 3.5 million ECGs between 2006 and 2018 and do over 100,000 teleconsultations. And the data that I don't show here is rates from myocardial infarction, which are heart attacks, have dropped by 50% death rates. And they've been able to dramatically improve all of their outcomes for cardiac disease in the remote regions. Again, we're lucky to partner with this group uh, in a, a study that I'll show you towards the end and in introducing ECHO into this ECG system to further improve care. So those are great examples of how we can provide care when we can't be there. But it's really important to think also how we can actually build the capacity to deliver care at the local level. And so the second way we've been using telemedicine is to build local healthcare worker capacity through task shifting. So moving echo, which is ultrasound again of the heart, down to lower level providers and providing remote mentorship on the ground to build that capacity locally. So really important, again, because remote consultation can provide emergency or temporary coverage, or in some examples, if the government really invests, like Brazil can scale, but building local capacity improves sustainability in a way that we can't do by remote consultation. So again, ECHO is recommended for the diagnosis of heart failure, most common cause of heart failure in Sub-Saharan Africa, again, is rheumatic heart disease. And the Ugandan guidelines, when we look, actually recommended ECHO as well but it wasn't available outside of the urban center. And so we thought about task sharing as providing a workforce to introduce ECHO to clinical diagnosis around Uganda. It also, if we can have less skilled providers providing the imaging, it frees up more specialized providers for higher level tasks. So we broke down where the bottleneck is in training. We looked at how much time it takes in the classroom to acquire the, the knowledge you need to do ECHO, how much time it takes to learn how to get the pictures. We could have all of you taking pictures by the end of this lecture, it's not that hard. And then how long it takes to interpret those images. That turns out to be the trickiest part of training. How do we give people the capacity to know what they're seeing? So how can we make this process less resource intensive and less scalable to create capacity around the country? So the first thing we did is some studies around asynchronous web-based tools, so just online education, if you say it in a less fancy way. And what we, what we produced were a series of 14 online modules that are freely available that take a non-expert user and build their skills in ultrasound and cardiac anatomy. We did some studies on this in Uganda, and it was very replicable. People liked it. They could do it whenever they wanted, and it built the education and the retention of the information that we needed. So we took those modules, and then we shortened our image acquisition course and standardized it. So we figured out that in one week with an in-person training course, this is Dr. Akello, the director of research at the Uganda Heart Institute with one of our nurses, Judith. We could do a one-week course that reproducibly in all users gave them 
capacity to take the echo images. And then this was the really innovative part of the project. So we, we developed a remote mentorship system. So they took the online class, they did their week of echo training, and then we set them free at Lira Regional Referral Hospital. So we took nurses, medical assistants, community health workers, and one doctor who was interested, did all those training courses, and then said, go ahead, echo anybody that has a clinical indication, come up with your first diagnosis, and we'll give you feedback within 24 hours. And so we went into a four-month remote mentoring period where the non-expert users entered all their clinical information, their interpretation, what they thought they were seeing on the ecosystem, and then we had feedback that came back within those 24 hours. And this is the diagram of the research, but what we showed is that performance by the end of those four months for the five providers who made it, which is really important. So not everybody did all the studies they were supposed to do, and, and what we see is that sort of sorts out on people who both have capacity to do this, have interest in it, and have the time. So we sort of asked for volunteers up front. So five people made it through. And what we found is by the end of four months of remote mentoring, each person had done at least 50 studies, so not that many, 50 studies by the end of four months. And we had 93% agreement in their initial diagnosis and the final diagnosis. And so, and we also saw that if we had them commit to a diagnosis before they did the echo and after, it changed their diagnosis in 80% of the cases really emphasizing that you have to have ultrasound there to make a correct diagnosis in the setting of heart failure. Again, about 90% of these cases were ended up being rheumatic. So it created a model that we're going to use again in Uganda to replicate, to use telementoring, both locally and in Uganda, to build more capacity at the regional referral hospital levels. The nice thing is this also left in place a teleconsultation service. So while they're, they're using ECHO alone, we left it behind at this hospital, they're also able to reach out through the telemedicine system now if they have a consult. And it happens once or twice a month where someone has a question. But in almost all cases, we've audited their images and their data. They're getting the correct diagnosis locally. Finally, where I spend most of my time in research, what can we do with telemedicine to facilitate high-quality research? So research in low-income settings has many of the same challenges as clinical care. But telemedicine allows us to remotely uh, look at images and cases from around the world and to apply more robust methodology for monitoring research settings. And our telemedicine has allowed our team to tackle a lot, a lot of questions in rheumatic heart disease that previously we thought were unanswerable. The first and one of the most exciting projects I think I've gotten to be involved in is looking at what was the risk of rheumatic heart disease to the pregnant mother and the unborn child. So we know in Sub-Saharan Africa that about a quarter to a third of deaths of maternal deaths are from non-obstetrical causes, but that piece of the pie is sort of a black box. We don't know what's in there because it's very hard to know what these mothers died from. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, the most common way to investigate maternal deaths is through a verbal autopsy or go speak to the family. But pre-existing heart disease is really impossible to know for a family member that that's why the mother died. And so we really don't know what's in that box. And as we look at global development goals, maternal mortality has fallen dramatically from obstetrical causes, but no one's really touching that piece of the pie. So we wondered, again, what is the risk of rheumatic heart disease? How much does it contribute? What we were able to do is add cardiac ultrasound to clinics that already had obstetrical ultrasound machines in them. So not everybody does, but they're, they're a lot more widespread. So we took normal uh, Health Center 3, which is the place where most women receive antenatal care, and added a cardiac probe and some training to the nurse midwives. 
and they were able to echo, add an echo on to every woman who came in for antenatal care. They put the clinical data into the web-based program. And for this, because it was research more than clinical care, we reviewed all of the images, so we had a robust interpretation. And studies were read within 24 hours and relayed back to the clinics so that they could care for their patients. And what we found was that 17 out of every 1,000 women had heart disease, and that 85% of this was rheumatic heart disease. Out of all the women diagnosed, so we echoed about 4,000 women using this process in three very remote clinics, only 3% of the women knew that they had heart disease, but 50% of the women experienced at least one cardiovascular side effect during their pregnancy that would not have been recognized. And it comes out to a calculation that 11% of maternal mortality in Sub-Saharan Africa, or at least in Uganda, may be the result of pre-existing cardiac disease. So essentially half of the piece of the pie we don't understand may be due to pre-existing cardiac disease. And we're, we're expanding this now to a study of 50,000 women around the country to get more precise estimates, but using the same model of telemedicine interpretation. This is a very sweet baby of a woman who had lost seven pregnancies before, who again went into heart failure at the beginning and was able to deliver a healthy baby with medical management. The other interesting study we've been doing is trying to understand rheumatic fever. The initial diagram I gave you was very clear. Strep, rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease. But in most rheumatic heart disease endemic settings, rheumatic fever is never diagnosed. It's a very nonspecific condition, and it gets sort of tucked in with other tropical diseases. It's hard to diagnose in the community. The resources aren't there. We actually had no idea why we weren't seeing it, but it's a very uncommon diagnosis. And so part of that challenge becomes bringing diagnostic services to the community to, to more fully understand this condition. This is a very complicated strategy, but this was our strategy, Third American Heart Association grant, to bring this care to the community so we can investigate rheumatic fever. And what you'll see is telemedicine is used all along this diagnostic pathway. So we use it to look at neurological videos from the field. We use it to read EKGs, which come over our cell phones all day. We use it to recover the echoes and to interpret the echoes. And we also use it to connect users around the globe. So our four reviewers for this study are in Brazil, South Africa, the United States, and France. And they're all able to review these studies every day for us. So this is just one example of some of the videos that come across. So rheumatic fever can also present as a movement disorder, which is called chorea, which is what this child has. Very characteristic, but if you haven't seen it before, it can be really tricky to diagnose. This is a very obvious case. So these videos come over once a week or so, and our neurologists are able to review them and get the diagnosis back to the field team. And what we found is that rheumatic fever, which was predicted, isn't rare at all in the community. Even though it's not diagnosed, about 25% of the kids who are showing up with symptoms concerning for rheumatic fever meet diagnostic criteria, and there's ongoing work to improve the diagnostic algorithm now that we know that the, the cases are out there in the community. Finally, this is the program we've piggybacked with that amazing EKG system in Brazil. So this is research to build echo capacity in the family health system of Brazil, again, using laptops and small machines to transmit images. And through this program, we've been able to screen about 12,000 children for rheumatic heart disease around the country and integrate echo into these primary healthcare systems. Again, Brazil is a lot better resource than Sub-Saharan Africa, so they've been able to pick up this program themselves. 
and have now put ECHO in the over 100 primary care centers around Belo Horizonte. The government has picked it up, and they are echoing on a routine basis to diagnose all causes of heart disease, but mainly rheumatic as well. That was Dr. Andrea Beaton, a physician and associate professor of pediatrics at the Heart Institute in the Cincinnati's Children's Hospital in Ohio. She was speaking at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, back on February 11, 2020. We'll play the second part of her talk about telemedicine next week. Stay tuned. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.